Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, everyone. This is Adam. On this episode of the Smart Home Show, Richard and I talk about when things are not going well in your smart home and how to troubleshoot the issues, what some common issues are, and how to solve them. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm Richard Gunther with the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to The Smart Home Show. I'm joined as usual by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense. On today's show, Adam and I are going to talk about smart home problems and what you can do to triage, troubleshoot, and hopefully solve some of them. We're also going to share some of our favorite tricks and tips to keep your home working smoothly. But as always, before we get started... I have a question for Adam. Adam, a lot of people end up going to school and getting a degree that is either right on target for what they're doing or has absolutely nothing to do with what they're doing in real life. I'm curious what you studied in school and where. So my my kind of navigation for school was a little interesting. I wasn't a great high school student. I was like a BC student. But I was really interested, you know, we're talking uh, late 90s, early 2000s, really interested in web design. And I was actually doing web design work, you know, professionally as a high schooler. So I kind of wanted to explore that more. Both my parents went to the University of Illinois. Um, so I applied there. And then I had some friends who went to Indiana. And so when I was a junior, went and visited Indiana and really was impressed with the school there. And there was a brand new program at Indiana called Informatics. And uh, if you've never heard of Informatics, Informatics is kind of a hybrid between computer science and a secondary field. And in the Informatics program, they even allowed you to have what's called a cognate. So you literally like pair Informatics with a secondary field and mine was business and entrepreneurship. Hmm. So in terms of actually like studying something that was relevant to my career, pretty much right on target. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually a really good fit. And I think kind of gave me a good, like I had two, three years of programming classes. I, I was actually really good at programming, but didn't care for it at all. But it gave me enough of an understanding to work with programmers and understand what they're doing and, and that kind of stuff. So I think it was a really good baseline in a lot of different areas to to really understand kind of all aspects of technology and, and a lot of what I do today. That's very cool. That's very cool. Well, I went to Penn State for a computer science degree. And I know so many people in the tech field that are like, you know, I never really used anything for my degree. I ended up doing X, Y, and Z, even in computer programming. And I think that for the most part, if you're looking at the very specifics that you learned in the classes that you took, uh, you know, the languages are probably out of date and 
you probably aren't building link lists anymore. But what I think it taught me was the ability to just kind of understand the core fundamentals of how a computer works and what it can do and, you know, what <laughs> what's the difference between the, and, and the cost of, say, I.O. versus memory operations and stuff like that. And so I still think that even though I learned how to program in a language that I never used in my real life, I ended up learning a lot that was useful and helpful to me in my career and is still a good foundation, I think. Yeah, I think sometimes it's it's less about the actual specifics and more about learning how to solve problems using technology, programming, etc. And it's that knowledge that you kind of carry on throughout your life. Exactly, exactly. I also kind of, you know, learned how to live on my own in college too, which I think is a useful lesson for a lot of people. <laughs> Yes, there's definitely some um, some soft skills you learn uh, throughout college. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to submit a question for us to ask each other at the open of the show, you can send us that question by posting it to Twitter with the hashtag Ask Adam and Richard. All right. Well, we're going to start off with a discussion about some of the problems that plague smart home users and. You know, it never seems to fail that when you're dealing with smart technology, something is going to go wrong, whether it's in trying to set it up and it doesn't end up working the way it's supposed to work when you set it up or in how it behaves over time or maybe how other people interact with it. Adding smart technology to your home is going to complicate things, period. So you want to do what you can to try and keep it working well. Yeah, I think it's a balance, too, because and I think this goes also to some people's hesitation for adding smart technology into their lives because they don't want to have to troubleshoot things and, you know, be an IT administrator for the home. <laughs> right. And yet, I think that's what ends up happening for many of us. Yeah, unfortunately. All right. Well, we have kind of three major areas that we're going to touch on here. And the first one, which is probably the most current issue that people deal with and something that drives everybody in the household crazy, is that if you have a digital voice assistant, that assistant sometimes doesn't work properly, or perhaps worse yet, doesn't understand you. Well, I don't know what's worse. Is it worse if it doesn't understand you or if it understands you and then tries to do something but fails it? I don't know. They're both really frustrating. Yes. We just wanted to do what we wanted to do. <laughs> Read our minds. <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm ready to have that chip implanted yet. Yeah. So maybe not so much yet. I watched a little bit too much Black Mirror. So I think um, I think there are a couple things that you can do to try and address these issues proactively. And the first is that if you haven't already done this with your voice assistant, you should go through whatever process exists on your assistant to train it. Usually, 
a voice assistant has a voice training program that either allows it to become familiar with the accents or nuances of the voices, or maybe even identify different voices in your home. So it's important to go through that training, not just for you, but also for anybody in your home that is going to be using these devices. And I know, obviously, Apple has this. It at least used to be part of the phone setup process. I haven't gotten it in a while, and I'm not sure if that's just because I've trained it and it doesn't need that data from me. <laughs> and I know Google has something, especially around multiple voices, but does Amazon have something like this as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It shows shows you how accessible it is that I don't even know about it. <laughs> well, finding anything in Amazon's Assistant app is just a nightmare. So I don't blame you for not knowing that. But yeah, you, you should definitely go through this process. It will help. I've done this myself, and it definitely helps. The other advantage that this provides you is that some of the ecosystems then allow you to lock out certain capabilities by voice. If it's not one of the recognized voices, then maybe it doesn't let that person buy anything. Or maybe it doesn't even let that person interact with the device as uh, Google's implemented with some of their devices. I like that, especially on the buying thing as a, a parent of small children who, knock on wood have not yet discovered the ability for random packages to show up at our house by talking to the lady. <laughs> I've certainly heard of that happening, though, from other parents. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. It's only a matter of time, right? Yeah, I know. Which one will be the most devious to figure that out? And <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, another thing that can really impact your assistant's ability to understand you is the environment that it's in. So if you're having problems with it understanding you and you've gone through the training and everything else, consider where the device is placed in relation to the people who are talking to it and other things in the room that might somehow interfere with sound. Now, I'll give you an example. I have a kind of worst case scenario room in my basement that we use as a gym area. And I have an assistant down there and it barely understands me. And part of the reason for that is that it's a square room. It's actually not a square room, but the, the overall dimensions of the room are square. And then imagine that it actually has cut-ins kind of like an octagon. So sound is just bouncing all over the place in this space. And it's a gym, so there's pretty much nothing on the walls. It's a basement, so it's hard walls. So that's a terrible environment for an assistant. So if you have a situation like that, you want to make sure that the assistant is as close to where people might be talking to it as possible. The other thing I'll throw in this category, too, is also consider proximity of multiple devices. Something weird that I've had happen a number of times because I have Echo devices in my bedroom and my master bathroom, which are not overly far from each other, is do you remember what that feature is called or whatever, where one picks up and the other doesn't? 
I don't know what it's called, but I'm pretty sure that I turned it on and I still have the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so how it's supposed to work is that it's supposed to detect which device is closest and have that one respond. That doesn't always happen. And then sometimes, you know, weird things happen or you can't hear the response because it's in another room. And so we've even had that happen with devices upstairs versus downstairs. So sometimes that feature just doesn't work well. So just something to think about as you place devices. And that too can be a side effect of the device in the space that's further away having the ability to receive clear, unobstructed audio better than something that's actually closer to you. For example, in my home, well, both my cleaning partner, my my cleaning partner, wow, I'm never going to live that one down. (laughs) My cleaning people and my partner like to hide the Echo devices because they're not pretty, right? Well, if you've put it behind something, you've immediately disadvantaged it. Right. Yeah, or I've also seen people set things on top of it. It's like, yeah, that's also where the microphones are. Right. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. I actually have my kitchen device smack on the middle of the island where the sink and everything else is. So it is where, for the most part, anyone would be facing if they're in the kitchen doing something. Now, one other thing that you can do with a lot of these devices is go in and help it better understand what you said if it didn't understand you. So in addition to training it with your voice, you can also just help make their voice recognition better by correcting what you provided, what it thinks you said. Google, I think, is probably best at this with some of their services, but I believe Amazon has a similar capability where you can go in and say, yeah, that's not what I said. And even type in more information if you want to clarify what it is that you said. Now, you may not actually have it keeping your voice utterances. You might have it deleting those now because you don't want them sent to the cloud and you don't want anyone analyzing them. And that's fine. But that's one of the things that you'll lose if that's how you're using your device. Yeah, I need to go in and do this. We have a routine, which I think we're going to dig more into this later, but that at bedtime, we turn off all the lights and turn on a fan for for noise for the dog. And so that routine is called Goodnight Chewy. So sometimes, and it's our kitchen echo that, that picks this up. Mm-hmm. And so usually what happens is we're like by the stairs and we're yelling this into the kitchen. Well, it doesn't always hear us right. And so sometimes this is literally like a bang your head against the wall thing because we say, okay, lady, you know, good night, Chewy. And sometimes it just says good night. So it just hears the good night part. So it'll just say good night. My other favorite response is uh, it'll also sometimes say good night, Julie. <laughs> and sometimes you get a string of these. So you'll you'll get good night, Julie. Then you'll get good night. Then you'll get, I didn't hear what you said. And you're just like, you know, you stink. So you can, in many cases, correct that. And it's a hassle. But, you know, every once in a while on a Sunday morning after I've already flipped through the news stories, I'll 
go through my app and see, okay, what crazy things did it think I said that got me all frustrated this week? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good idea. And I think it's a, a case where hopefully a little bit of work will save you that type of situation that I just described in the future. Now, all of this really had to do with having it understand you. But oftentimes there are problems where it's just not doing what you want it to do. I have found in most cases, this is because the skills that I'm using have evolved since I initially started using them. And they're either not up to date or they're not even connected, for example. And the best example that I can think of here is with smart home apps or smart home skills, rather, Amazon has been adding more and more capabilities over time. And so I've seen some of the devices that I have offer like new, completely new skills different from the ones that I was already using. And the vendor, without even realizing it, is in the process of kind of deprecating the old skill that I'm still using. So it's important that you every once in a while check to make sure that you are using the latest skills for your products that you have or your systems that you're linking to. So it's able to take advantage of all the capabilities that the vendor intends. Yeah, hopefully this will, just based on what I know about the ecosystems, hopefully this will happen less over time because I think they're trying to make skills so that they can change and expand and have more capabilities, you know, stuff like, I want to say like Ecobee used to have multiple skills. One was a smart home skill. One was a, you know, a, a custom skill. Yep. And they're trying to make that all kind of work under one umbrella now. So there should be a lot less of that going forward, but there might be some pain in the, in the meantime. And that very example that you just gave is exactly what I've experienced with multiple companies' products. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is an area too where nobody's really done a good job of solving this problem. It's not very discoverable. Even when you do have a skill enabled, you know, what are the commands you can use? What is the structure? What are all the different ways you can do it? That's something where they could do some better stuff to help you understand what command structure is needed. What can I do with this? It's just not very clear all the time. I would argue that it's not very clear most of the time. I think most skills that I've seen published provide you maybe half a dozen examples of the types of things that you can say to your device or to your assistant to get your device or devices to work. And it's far from the complete vocabulary it's far from the complete set of capabilities. So some way, uh, and I don't know what it is. Like, I, I'm not a language expert. I'm not the person to try and solve this problem. But there's got to be a way to help people better understand all the things that you can do and the different ways that you can accomplish it. And I know you don't want to have to list out the, you know, thousand different permutations of words you could use to get there. But we need more information than we're getting on a lot of this stuff. Yep. Totally agree. All right. Well, let's move on to 
probably people's most consistent, annoying smart home issue since smart homes existed. And that's that sometimes when you send a command to something or you have something that's supposed to happen automatically, it just doesn't. And I, I mean, I've been having this problem since the X10 days. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's something that's still still cropping up regularly. Now, the cause of this could be different depending on what kinds of devices that you're using. I think nowadays, most of this can probably be attributed to the signal that your device needs not getting to the device consistently, whether that's Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or Z-Wave, Zigbee, something that's you know, specific to your uh, device itself, what, whatever it's using, the radio signal needs to be able to get to the device if it's not specifically wired in. And in most cases, that seems to be what causes these sorts of problems. So let's look at Wi-Fi, for example. You know, one of the things that we've seen a lot of people complain about is that devices around the periphery of the home don't seem to work consistently. That's because most Wi-Fi isn't designed to necessarily work in the periphery of your home. It's designed to work in the central spaces where you reside and maybe not out where your doorbell is or your security light is. Yeah. And speaking of doorbells, I think actually Ring, probably because of this problem, is one of the ones that does a better job of giving people information. So they actually give you your your RSSI value, which is the signal strength for Wi-Fi. And I believe they also give some sort of consumer-friendly word like, you know, good, you know, poor, something like that to, to actually put that value in a something that normal people would understand. And given that, I mean, I think one of the ways to fix some of these issues is to add something like an Eero or a... Uh, Google Mesh system, some sort of mesh Wi-Fi. And in fact, this is what I had to do specifically for my Ring doorbell because I had such a poor Wi-Fi signal. Turns out maybe it was partially a device issue because they sent me a new one. I still haven't installed it, but I, I showed up on some list somewhere of customers with bad hardware and they just sent me an email and I, I even thought it might have been a scam. It was so weird. They were just like, hey, we want to send you a new doorbell. And okay. And they did. Now I just have to put it in. But hmm. but yeah, originally my, my solution for this was I actually put a second Eero, an, an additional Eero, like right next to where that doorbell was, kind of out of sight in the adjoining room to get some signal to that device. Yeah. And I, in most cases, if it's a Wi-Fi thing, that is usually the best solution. Just make sure that there's some good Wi-Fi near there. Maybe consider moving your Wi-Fi points around if they are in places that they can be moved. Like with Eero, depending on how you're using it, sometimes you have some options for where you can put those. And some of the newer systems that actually use a wireless signal as their backbone give you much, much greater flexibility to put these things anywhere that you want to. I actually solved 
a problem I was having in my Unify system that I have around my house just by swapping two access points that I have. I have a higher end, a pro version of their access point in my office closet so that I would have nice, clean signal in my office. And then out in the hallway, a little further away, I just had one of their standard first-generation access points. And I was having all kinds of problems with Wi-Fi in the other bedrooms. And literally just yesterday, I swapped these two, and all these problems went away. Huh. Now, that kind of makes sense to me, because the newer version has better range, it has more signal options, uh, more Wi-Fi version options, if you will. And so that's out where the other rooms can access it. And in my closet, I just have the one that doesn't have as much range, which is fine because it's in my closet. And oh, by the way, guess what? All my computers are wired in my office. So it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think just doing some experimenting and some tinkering around when you have those options can be really helpful. One of the things I played around with a little bit, most of my house is wired, actually, and so my Eros are all, most of them are wired. And so I have to have the one in the basement where the cable modem is. Originally, I had another one, basically one floor up, directly above that. And ultimately, what I figured out was that wasn't working. And... <laughs> well, and not good coverage. Right. And, well, I, my original thought process was I wanted to put base stations in the areas where I thought we used Wi-Fi the most. And so I wanted to have any anywhere where I think we're going to be using a lot of Wi-Fi. So the family room, which is right above the basement, made sense to me. But ultimately, I think those two were too close together and possibly interfering with each other. And ultimately what I did instead was I moved to the kitchen, which is kind of opposite of that and kind of doing a zigzag pattern in a, you know each floor to kind of cover different areas. And so that's what worked for me, but you know I would encourage people to kind of you know play around and, and kind of see see what works and what you can tweak to to get the best coverage. Now, we've been talking about Wi-Fi most of this time, but like I said, this could apply to Bluetooth. This could apply to Z-Wave or Zigbee. I had problems when I installed some Hue bulbs in a room where I never before used Hue bulbs. I wasn't able to get a signal to them. And the solution ended up being kind of twofold. One was that I needed other devices kind of in between where my new bulbs were and where my old stuff was to act as repeaters. So I actually invested in some plugs that can just then repeat the signal, and I, I'm not even using them. They're just plugged into the wall to act as a signal repeater. The other thing that I found is that the newer generation Hue bulbs are significantly better with their radio than the first generation Hue bulbs. Probably not surprising. Yeah. Good to know, though. If you're using Bluetooth, you could have similar issues. Some Bluetooth systems mesh, some do not. 
it's really hard to know where you have a signal. Fortunately, we know somebody who created an app that can help with that. And I'm going to put in a pitch again for another one of Aaron's apps called HomeScan for HomeKit. And this is an app that you can put on your phone or tablet, your iOS devices, and walk around your home to see how strong are the Bluetooth signals coming from the Bluetooth devices in your home. Very useful for troubleshooting stuff like this. Absolutely. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is that, and we'll talk a little bit more about routines and groups and stuff like that. Sometimes if you're trying to do too much in a scene or too much in a a group all at the same time, that can cause things to not work properly. The best, and I think I can get away with calling this an analog example that I would make here is your universal remote control. When your universal remote control sends signals to the devices in your entertainment center, it needs to have time between each one of them so that it's not sending out everything at once and just hoping that everything can get done all at the same time. It doesn't work well when you do that. And and sometimes I've found that just simply adding a delay in a routine or a scene that you have set up for your devices to work will solve some problems that you might see if you're getting inconsistent behavior from devices when they are being controlled together. Makes sense. And then finally, and this is certainly kind of a worst case scenario for your devices, but it may just make sense to reset the device. Make sure that when you start it up again, you have the latest software that's available for it, perhaps in the form of a firmware update from the manufacturer. That's not something that everybody's checking for all the time. Sometimes the apps aren't that good at letting you know that there are updates. So I have found that oftentimes just, you know, have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? Works. But, you know, the hard way, the the reboot way. Yeah, a second endorsement to the the firmware update thing, because I know some of the updates we've done to some of our devices in the past are focused on that kind of reliability or connectivity issues we've been made aware of or, or things like that. So that's how manufacturers are improving the overall reliability of devices and adding to, you know, that mix to, um, you know, help them stay online or, or get rid of those issues. All right. So that's, that's kind of some of our troubleshoot, troubleshooting thinking on devices not working. That's great for you when you're home. But if your life works any way at all, like mine does, as soon as you leave, as soon as you go away, if you're out for just one day or a week, something's going to break while you're away. Yes, as a, a person who lives with other people that use this stuff too, I will always hear about it. <laughs> and you're the IT guy. Yep. So some things that you can do to kind of help with that. I, I, I wanted to not necessarily help you with troubleshooting this, but to prepare you better to troubleshoot. And these are some of the things that I've done with this. The The first is make sure before you go away that you've set up whatever you need to set up to have remote access to 
control the devices. Sometimes if you're just controlling this stuff in your home, you're like, ah, I don't have a use case for controlling it remotely. I'm not going to bother with the account or whatever else I need to set up there. Do it. Because when you're not home, you may want to go in and find out what's going on. This could be really helpful. Another thing that can be helpful is to give people in the home a way to do that whole, have you tried turning it off and turning it on again thing? My Apple TV is constantly problematic. I have to reboot that thing probably once a month. Drives me crazy. I don't know why we still have this problem on what's, what, the sixth generation of this product now, Adam? Yep. But the solution that I have is a smart plug that I plug the Apple TV into and then a routine in Amazon's app that lets anyone yell out, reset the Apple TV. And and that will turn it off and turn it back on as well? Yes. The routine will will cut the power to it, leave it off for 10 seconds, or I think 15 is the smallest amount of time that you can select in the app, and then turn it back on again. Nice. Yep. And as a manufacturer of smart plugs, uh, I love this. Another good use case for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I need to do, I need to do this with my Apple TV too because that's the number one device I probably have to unplug and plug back in for various reasons. Inevitably, if I get the call that the TV isn't working, that's what it is. Yeah. Now, speaking of the TV not working, something that I have found to be invaluable and this is so so simple. If you have one or more remotes that you use to control your television, Put them out on the coffee table or end table or sofa and take a picture of them. Have that on your phone so that if you need to walk someone through the process of trying to fix what isn't working on the television or in the entertainment center, you can refer to the remotes and the buttons on the remotes in the right context. You can use the right label name for it. You can tell the person where it is. You probably just know this stuff by muscle memory, but in all likelihood, not everybody in the house has that level of familiarity Familiarity with this. I have a funny story about this. So we have a Harmony remote. Uh, I don't remember which one, but Universal remote. And my parents were watching the kids one day and my mom's texting me about issues with the TV and you know, we get home and she's like, yeah, your Netflix wasn't set up. And I was like, really confused. I'm like, what are you talking like our, our Netflix is signed into like, what are you talking about? Well, it had been since we gotten the new TV and for whatever reason, she found the TV remote, not the harmony. Oh yeah. And so she started digging into the smart TV apps. Yep. And she put in, she ended up just putting in her username and password on Netflix for the TV, but she was very confused as to what she was doing or how she was getting there because she had the totally wrong remote. So my suggestion there is to hide all the other remotes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that's a really good idea. Hide the other remotes, but know where they are <laughs> just yes. so that you can tell someone if they need to fix something, where to go find the remotes that will solve the problem for them. 
I do like, uh, you know, shout out to Harmony also. I mean, one thing I do really like in their remotes is the the help function, where if you push help on a Harmony remote, it'll kind of walk you through a pretty idiot-proof thing is like, is the TV on? Yes. You know, is this, you know, is the receiver on? No. Did that fix the problem? No. All right. On to the, you know, so kind of a little kind of tutorial type walkthrough that helps you solve some of these issues. Yeah, I think they do a good job with that. And even their simpler remotes without a screen on them, like the companion or the smart add-on remote, also work so that if you just press the button for the function that you were triggering, then it'll just send everything again. It'll try it again to see if the second time's a charm, you know? Yep. So that's kind of what I was thinking in terms of going through problems and troubleshooting. And I think a lot of this ends up leading into some best advice that we might have on optimizing your smart home, but we'll get to that, right? Yeah. So let's take a quick break for our sponsors and we'll be back with some more smart home discussion. Okay. So now we have a few kind of tips and tricks of, I would call this, you know, some things you can do when you're setting this stuff up to avoid problems later. Mm-hmm. Would you categorize it that way as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, you may not always do this right when you're initially setting up the device. You can always go back and improve things over time if you need to. Yeah. Just general, uh, yeah, things you can do to improve your chances of success. So I think the first category here is device naming. You know, this was pretty easy when everything was kind of in their own walled gardens. You could name stuff however you wanted. It was cosmetic, really, more than anything. But now with these voice ecosystems, names matter and everything gets mixed together. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And sometimes when you make changes in one service, it doesn't get reflected in another. So I think you really have to have this voice first thought process in how you name devices. You know, this advent of voice in the home has made me completely rethink how I name devices. And way before having an Echo, I already had like 80 things in my home that were named and automated. So this ultimately has been really challenging for me because names like Fireplace light one, fireplace light two. It just doesn't make sense in terms of commanding them by voice. Right. Yeah. And you want it to also be, you need it to be something that's easy to understand, but you also need it to be something that's easy to remember Yep. for you and for the other people in your home. Yeah. So yeah, I think some of the things here are naming things logically for voice command. So Um, That goes into that, you know, things that you can remember. Also, making sure things aren't named too similarly. You know, you can't call everything a lamp. (laughs) So you got to be more specific. And I think another thing to remember, too, is there are also location-specific stuff. And we can get into that later when we talk about groups and routines. But, like, early on, I named stuff like bedroom lamp. You know, you can actually do stuff 
with rooms and other things in, in your smart home. So you, you got to be kind of creative with these things as well. Right. And bedroom lamp is really problematic when it comes into a system like Google Home or Siri. Well, Siri is actually pretty good about forgiving repetitive room names. In fact, I might argue they do it better than anyone because they just truncate it if it's duplicative of the room you already have it in. But this made me rename everything because I did do things this way. And and furthermore, I had scenes. I thought I was being so clever, Adam. <laughs> in Insteon, full disclosure, I have a contract relationship with Insteon. In Insteon systems, you have the ability to make things work together with scenes. Like one of the reasons that you use scenes is to keep stuff in sync. I have two switches that act as a three-way switch. When one goes on, I want to turn the other one on automatically. You do that with a scene. I thought I was being so clever by naming the things Garage Light, Garage Light Remote. Garage Light was the name of the scene, too, because it made sense to me. You pull all of that into an Echo, and suddenly... She doesn't know what I'm talking about when I ask her to turn on the garage light. Yeah, because there's too many things by that same name. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it makes sense. You got to think about all the things that, that carry that name across the entire ecosystem. Because if you also have a room named garage, that's also going to you know play into what's being you know sorted out yep. in that mix. Yep. Absolutely. And like we just mentioned, different ecosystems handle that differently. Yeah, I'm, I would definitely say I'd love to hear how listeners and other people, you know, do this. If people have creative ways or tricks, you know, I think, you know, we can obviously share what we've done, but I'm sure there's a lot of different ways that people have tackled this problem. Well, one of the ways I think that people have found by kind of by accident, at least I did, is that you can rename your devices in your like aggregated ecosystem of choice. If that's Amazon's assistant or if it's Google's assistant, once it sees everything, you can rename it in there. Just be aware that if you do that, that name doesn't get reflected back in the original system. For example, if you have Lutron lights and you rename the individual switches, that's not going to rename them back in the Lutron app. Similarly, if you have more than one system hooked up, like let's say you have smart things and you have an assistant and both of them see your Lutron lights, each of them has its own record of what those lights are called. So you probably want to keep them in sync if you do change those names. Now, I know for our stuff... If you change the name of one of our devices, I think you might have to, in Amazon at least, I think you have to rerun Discover Devices to pick up those changes, but it should pick up those changes if you make changes in our app. What I don't know off the top of my head is if you change those in Amazon, if those then reflect back. In my experience, if you change them in the ecosystem, they don't change back. The exception to that, of course, is... HomeKit devices that directly connect to HomeKit. Yep. If you're using a bridge or a hub 
And that's how you're connected to HomeKit. Those devices won't automatically get renamed. But if you are naming something that's directly connected to HomeKit, the name is the name is the name. Right. But with HomeKit, it's a little more complicated than that because you have a device name. You could potentially have a service name. That's the thing that that device exposes or does for you. And some applications allow you to set up the Siri name for the device. Yeah. The device name and the Siri name, if they're exposed right, should be one and the same. But yeah, in the case of our plug, there's a name for that whole total plug that really is useless in terms of what Siri commanding <laughs> right. goes. Right. It's just, what do you want to call the device overall? And then this, the names that matter are the Siri names for the individual outlets. Exactly. Exactly. And the, your outlets is a great example of that because with your outlet, you name the outlet basically for what it is. And then Siri or whatever system can just see, okay, uh, turn on the outlet for the shredder or turn on the outlet for the charger or whatever. I Well, that's what I have hooked up to my outlet, but so that, that can, uh, that can help there. So yeah. And, and one more trick, this is going to be kind of a transition to your next topic here in Amazon's assistant. You can create a group to establish an alias for a device. So if there's some reason that your device needs to be named what it's named, but you want to be able to call it something else, either occasionally or for your family or for whatever reason, you can put it in a group by itself with that name that you want people to be able to refer to it by. I think the other really powerful thing as we get into groups is Amazon allows you to to group an Echo device in a group with other devices. We'll just use lights as an example. Yep. So in my bedroom, we have two bedside lamps, each with uh, LifeX bulbs in them, and an Echo device that's on my, my bedside table. So I have a group of all of those. And what that allows us to do is you can then give generic commands to that echo, like turn off the lights, and then the echo will only command those two devices. Because it knows that it's in the same group as those devices. So if you don't tell it where or which specific lights, it's only going to control those. That is magic. Yes. I've never been able to get that to work in my house. Really? Never. Oh, wow. Never. Works for Google doesn't work on Amazon's at all. Oh, this is like, this was a game changer of a thing to set up in my house because it, it made stuff usable. You didn't have to play the name game anymore. <laughs> right. And you it was a lot more usable for other people too, because before that feature came around, if you said turn off the lights and you have 50 lights in your house. Turn them all it, off. It would turn off every light in the entire house. Yep. So... But back to our conversation earlier about the wrong device hearing you, I just had this happen last night. <laughs> exactly. My my echo on my bedside table was updating or something. I don't know. I, I didn't realize it until we gave a command 
Then the echo in the bathroom heard it. It didn't have any lights grouped with it. And then it didn't know, you know, I was like, eh, nope, not going to do that. Well, that's better than, say, accidentally turning the lights on or off on someone when you didn't intend to do that. Yeah, we were going to bed, so it wouldn't have mattered. But but yeah, either way, that that can cause issues. But yeah, I, uh, maybe we'll have to do some remote troubleshooting. And I'll have to help you get your groups working because it's... It's a great feature and it works really well for us. I have, yeah, I have wanted to do that for a long time. So let, let's dive more into groups and routines and scenes and automation. Cause I think this is where the real power is for most smart home tech. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, scenes are kind of the most, one of the more basic ones, which is just being able to command a number of devices all at once. So, you know, I guess a good example of a scene uh, as we're coming up on the holidays is, you know, I had a scene uh, that commanded all my outdoor Christmas lights. And mm-hmm. so you would say, you know, hey, lady, uh, it's Christmas time. And, you know, the, the lights would come on on the inside tree and all the outside stuff. Um, so just something simple like that. Well, and so if you have that set up, like specifically in your application of choice for your assistant, that might either be a scene or a routine, depending on how your system perceives these things. Some systems have both. Right. You can have both scenes and routines. Scenes are often thought of as, I'm going to do all this stuff at once on disparate devices. It may be two devices that are right next to each other. It may be two devices on completely different ecosystems and you're going to set them to completely different settings, but whatever you're doing, you're doing it all at the same time. Whereas a routine I think of as, I think routines are very similar to automations that you might have in, in HomeKit, where based on something, you're going to do one or more things. Yeah, I think the other at least in the Amazon ecosystem, the other kind of unique thing about routines is you can also pull in other actions. So you can also have a routine, you know, if you said, you know, hey, lady, good morning. Part of your good morning routine could also be to read you the weather and the local news. Right. So there's a lot of deeper options of things outside of just smart home stuff that you can add in the mix there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So the other one uh, you mentioned kind of already is automations. And automations can be things that just happen automatically. So a good example of this would be, you know, when I see motion, turn on this light, you know, things like that. And these don't also have to be all at once. These can control multiple things simultaneously in most cases. In HomeKit, for example, depending on which app you're using, you might see an automation trigger a scene. Some apps let you actually trigger specific devices and set them to specific settings. And you can usually then have it turn off or do like the opposite action in some period of time. Right. So in my my previous example... I see motion, turn on a light for five minutes, and then turn it back off. Right. And that's far more useful 
then say, I see motion, turn on the light. I don't see motion now, turn off the light. That's going to create you all kinds of problems in your home. Right, exactly. Disco mode. <laughs> right, exactly. So those delays are really useful. They're great for things like bathrooms, hallways, the door just opened, and so you have a mudroom and you want to keep the light on for a period of time, or maybe even your front light. I put my front light on when my front light's on. I only want it on for like half an hour. We don't keep it on all the time, so turn it off after a period of time. Stuff like that that you want. There's some cleanup to think about that you want to do later. Now, you called these automations, but it's also important to consider that in some systems, they have different names. In Amazon actually bundles automations with routines. You can use a sensor in a routine to trigger the start of a routine or a voice command. Or in smart things, for example, you would have, I think they call them automations now. I think they brought back that term instead of thinking the, of them all as smart apps. So different systems will call these different things, but you know, you need to think about the types of things that are going to make your life easier. And most of these systems now also have the ability to make the logic conditional. For example, if you open the back door, maybe you don't want the outside light coming on during the middle of the day. In fact, I'd argue you probably don't want the light coming on in the middle of the day. So a lot of these allow you to say, oh, if it's after sunset. Yep, absolutely. Or after a certain time or something like that. And let's see, anything more on scenes and automations you wanted to talk about? I guess the thing that I find really useful on a lot of these is that voice capability that you were talking about when we started this discussion about routines, which is that you're going to blurt something out to your assistant and then something is going to happen. And that's not only useful for stuff that you do all the time, but for those exception cases, like I said, like resetting the Apple TV or you know, you gave the example of turning on the Christmas lights or, or in, in your case, it's Christmas time, you know, like a clever way of saying that, that allows you to then interact with your assistant in a way that's more natural. I think that's kind of cool. And, and you can come up with all kinds of clever things that you could do that are so much easier if you could just blurt it out in the air instead of, having to pull out an app or, you know, having it triggered from a button or something like that. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are other things you can do to just kind of make it easier for other people to use them as well. So you had some example here for party and entertaining modes. Well, yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit about how some systems actually have modes of operation. I think of smart things is Initially, when I think of stuff like this, smart things has the idea of being home or being away or being asleep. And you can create your own modes and you can set a mode and make a mode a condition on things. So, for example, maybe when you, well, when you switch from one mode to the next, because maybe something triggers that mode automatically. Maybe it's your thermostat or, or maybe telling 
your assistant good night. Maybe that changes the mode. Then it can, it meaning smart things, can do a whole bunch of stuff based on just switching modes. Or it can know that, all right, well, when I'm in sleep mode, don't turn the bathroom light on when I walk into the bathroom. Instead, trigger this scene. So there's some pretty clever things that you can do with modes. Again, not all systems have this, but many systems do have the ability to kind of have some sort of uh, setting or value that you trigger things off of. So for example, if you had a keypad and those keypads were, the keypad buttons were assigned to different phases of your day. And maybe one of them is a good morning, one of them is good night, and one of them is away, things like that. You could potentially use the setting on that keypad as a condition for your scenes or routines so that they don't automatically happen when you don't want them to happen. And my favorite example for this is if you're having guests over and you're having a party and everybody's enjoying themselves as they should at a party past 11 o'clock. And yet, sure enough, at 11 o'clock, the lights around the house just start going off. Yeah. That's a bad experience. And I'm sure, I'm sure Many of us have experienced that with our smart homes. Trying to give people the sign to get out of here. (laughs) So if you had a party mode or a button on a keypad that you press when you're having guests over or something, then you can use that as a condition in your routines and prevent stuff like that from happening. I found that very, very helpful. This is great when you're entertaining It's great if you have the babysitter over. Uh, Again, almost everybody has a story about the lights going off on the babysitter. That happens more often in smart homes than not. It is good if you have a house sitter so that you don't necessarily have all this stuff happening that they don't understand what's going on. So in that way, I think kind of having a state of your home that adjusts to or or I should say that impacts how it's operated can be really useful. Absolutely. And one more thing that I wanted to talk about before we completely leave scenes and routines is this idea of seasonal scenes. You mentioned the holiday lights. Do you use that all year round? I do not. Well, why not, Adam? Don't you have your lights on all year round for Christmas? Yeah, the neighbors complain come about March. <laughs> One of the things that I've learned over time is that I would end up kind of creating new scenes every year, sometimes seasonally, for different things like holiday lights, or maybe you manage your exterior lights differently during the winter or uh, during the um, the periods of time when it's darker earlier than you might during the summer. These types of things are often the kind of thing that you might just like switch on or off for a period of time. But a lot of people end up just creating them every time. So one of the things that I wanted to remind people about is that most systems now have the ability to just turn off certain routines and automations that you can just disable a routine so that it doesn't happen 
anymore. And I have ended up doing this for a bunch of things. I do this for the holiday lights, and then I just kind of keep my holiday light devices bundled together, and I reuse them again the next year. Or for my outdoor lights, I I do this because I have different outdoor lights that I use depending on whether it's bug season or not. When it's bug season, the lights right at the door do not go on until everybody's asleep. When it's not bug season, that's the light that we normally have on at the door. So you don't want to have to change that you know, twice a year. Just have different routines that you can swap in and out as you need them. The other thing I think I'll mention here too is that a, a bunch of different ecosystems now also offer options that can be queued off of sunrise and sunset. So obviously sunrise, sunset changes throughout the year. And so if you use those sunrise, sunset or an offset of those, so sometimes you can say turn on the lights an hour before sunset, you know, things like that, that will help it evolve throughout the year as that, that point in time changes. Yeah, Amazon has added this to their apps. I believe that Google has had it all along. The third-party service called Yonomi just added this recently. This is really useful. You do not want to have to change your time-based routines to adjust as the sun behavior in your locale changes. That would just be a real hassle. So yeah. HomeKit has had, maybe they haven't had it since the beginning, but they've definitely had it for a while as well. This is very, very useful. I highly recommend this. And speaking of, I have one more, I just have one more, one more thing, okay? Speaking of ways that you can use your routines optimally, if you are a Hue, a Philips Hue user, and I believe that Lifex has very similar capabilities now. Philips Hue has been rolling out a bunch of automated routines in their Hue Labs section. It's something that you have to explicitly go to and it kind of, it's web-based. So if you're in the app, it's a little bit janky, but you can also just go onto their website and run the Hue Labs that way. There are a lot of very useful routines that they have there, like pairing sensors so that two sensors can be in the same space and work together instead of against each other, or uh, temporarily disabling the a sensor so that it doesn't, in fact, interrupt some an exception case that you might have on right now. My favorite of all of these is time-based lighting so that based on the time of day, the light will come on at different color temperatures and at different brightnesses automatically. And you can set the color that it would come on with and the brightness individually for five different time blocks, which is pretty good, I think, for most cases. So you could have like a really bright, uh, a more pure white color light first thing in the morning. You could have warmer tones in the evening, you can have a dimmer light. You can even have like a night light mode that you use late at night. And then whenever you turn those lights on, either with a sensor or just turning them on manually from a switch or something, they'll come on at that setting. It's really, really slick. And I've been setting this up in a couple of rooms now. I need to check this out. My wife just reminded me that 
we actually have hue bulbs in our office and i believe for whatever reason they got disconnected or unpaired but this would be a great place to utilize that because she works out of that office throughout the day and um you know just change it based on natural light and some other things um i think that could be really helpful yeah i i think these i'm a big one for circadian lighting and so this kind of thing is is perfect and i've actually set up lights in my kitchen that just come on when there's motion in the kitchen stay on for 10 minutes and they come on based on the time of day cool well i think that is going to do it for our tips Hopefully, you've learned something that you can use in your home. We have a question from a listener that we're going to answer here. Listener through Twitter, listener IMCDN28 asked, It appears like Wink is about to die. What would be a good replacement for their hub? So, yeah, we heard a couple weeks ago that the company that owns Wink is having some problems. And I actually wrote about this on the DMZ. This is really unfortunate, but I think many of us were wondering how much longer is Wink going to survive? I still don't think we know, right? They may be around for a bunch longer. They may not be. But I would argue that if you have Wink and you want a system that's just as powerful and just as easy to use, then Smart Things is probably your best bet as a replacement. It supports a ton of devices. They're making a lot of improvements to it that are coming out almost weekly now, it seems. And that's kind of my go-to as a replacement recommendation for Wink. If you're more of a tinkerer and want the ability to do more off-book kind of stuff and maybe write some code and you're not as worried about what the user experience is like for people in your household, Hubitat has a great inexpensive hub solution that does most of the things that SmartThings does, except it's all run on local control. It can even control other systems in your home through local control that aren't just Z-Wave and ZigBee. So uh, that's something to consider if if that's a concern for you. And finally, if you don't mind using cloud control, there are several third-party services that you can use that control stuff over the cloud and exclusively over the cloud. This obviously isn't good for Bluetooth or, or ZigBee and Z-Wave devices unless they're on some sort of connected hub. But you know me. And I'm going to spell that because nobody's going to know how that's spelled. Y-O-N-O-M-I. You know me is a great third-party service that ties together about a dozen or two of the major brands and lets you do most of what we talked about today, actually, all through the cloud. Yeah, and I think if, you're, if you've got all cloud-connected devices, so if you're not ZigBee or Z-Wave, I would also just take a look at some of those voice ecosystems and see how you can use those to possibly tie things together because that's always changing. They're always adding support for new devices. So, you know, kind of do a little bit of an inventory of what you have connected to Wink today and see what you can do with it in, in some of those other ecosystems. So uh, if you have a smart home question for us, like this user did, send it our way with the hashtag AskSmartHomeShow. And uh, we'll pick a question or two to answer in each show. 
All right. So that wraps our show. Adam, how can people find you if they want to learn more about ConnectSense or hear what you happen to be saying out there on the internet? Sure. You can find everything about ConnectSense at ConnectSense.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice. How about you, Richard? You can find me over at the Digital Media Zone. That is thedigitalmediazone.com. And I also host Home On. And you can find me on Twitter at Richard Gunther. And you'll get a taste of, um, well, these days, a lot of political conversation. So I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> <laughs> the Smart Home Show is part of Technology.fm, a collection of tech-focused podcasts that includes Home Tech FM, The Food Tech Show, and my other show, Home On. And we have a website now. Smarthome.fm is where you'll find our show notes and details about each episode. You'll find our podcast wherever you find your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and anywhere else. And do us a favor. If you like the show, tell a friend, subscribe, and maybe leave a rating or a review. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.